You know, several years ago, I was playing basketball with a bunch of friends, as was my regular Saturday morning routine. And one friend, Andre, surprisingly showed up and began warming up with us for the game. Andre had bad knees, and he had retired from playing basketball years earlier. So all of a the sudden, there he was preparing to play like nothing had ever happened. So I walked over to him and I said, I thought you retired from playing basketball. He said when he turned to me, you believe in resurrection, don't you? <laughs> he had me there. As a minister of the gospel, I do believe in resurrection. And if resurrection of the dead is possible, what other kinds of ways might we experience new life, renewed life? So he had had surgery on his knees. He came out of retirement. And he wanted to find out what else was possible. One cold January afternoon in 2009, U.S. Airways Flight 1549 out of LaGuardia Airport in New York headed for Charlotte, North Carolina. Instead, it landed in the waters of the Hudson River after losing power when it struck a flock of birds in one engine. You probably remember that event. It wasn't that long ago, or possibly you saw the movie with Tom Hanks playing the leading role. It was the quick thinking of that pilot and the survival of everyone on that plane that instantly made a hero out of Sully Sullenberger. But you likely don't remember the story of Rick Elias from that same day in 2009. Rick Elias was seated in seat 1D on that airplane. And he was the only one who was able to see and talk to the flight attendants that day when things went sideways. He said after the pilot turned off the engines and as that plane eerily, silently glided barely over the George Washington Bridge, and toward the Hudson River, his mind was filled with thoughts of life, of his work, of his family. In a TED Talk, Elias said he learned three things that day when he thought he was going to die. He learned, first of all, that it all changes in an instant. It all changes in an instant. And therefore, he learned, don't postpone living. Embrace it daily. Don't put off things that are the most important to you. It all change, can change instantly. Two, he learned that he regretted time wasted giving to the priority of things that don't matter over the people in his life that do matter. And his marriage is all the better for having learned that lesson. He's tried to eliminate negative energy in his life as a result of that experience. And then finally, number three, he learned that what was most important to him was seeing his kids grow up and being the best father he could be. 
So he concludes that TED Talk, which you can see on YouTube, I'm sure, saying that he was given the gift of two miracles that day. The first was the gift of not dying. And the second was the miracle of seeing the future and being able to come back and live differently. So I guess the question is, what are you putting off thinking you have more time for? And how might you live differently if you were given a second chance to live? I think our text in Ezekiel today provides a graphic image of those two things. A graphic image of resurrection. A corporate resurrection. It's a gift to those who haven't died to have a vision of the future, enabling them to live differently in the present. Here's an Old Testament reference to resurrection at a time in the history of God's people of deep despair, deep hopelessness. So the prophet Ezekiel is brought out, brought out and set down in the middle of a valley of dry bones. It's a battlefield of some kind. And that graphic description in Ezekiel 37 reminds me of the picture of the battlefield from the Civil War at Antietam. Or perhaps, if you're from the south, it's known as the Battle of Sharpsburg. Early photography, in 1862, the bloodiest day in American history. 22,717 either dead, wounded, or missing that day, September 17, 1862. Early photography captured the scene days later of corpses lying in the field, both men and horses, bloated and decaying. In the darkest of times, God's presence is often most known. When one comes up against the limit of what's humanly possible, we sometimes find ourselves filled, lifted up, sustained by that which is outside of us, the very breath of God. Despair. Down to the bone despair. It engulfed the nation of Israel. When Ezekiel first spoke these words in our text this morning, they'd been overpowered by their enemies. Many lay dead. Cities were destroyed. Other cities were laid siege. The brightest and the best of those in the society had been exiled abroad, never to return. The situation was completely and utterly hopeless. The nation itself had become a valley of dry bones. There was no life. There was no stirring by their own effort. There was no pulling themselves up by their own bootstraps. None of that was possible. 
The situation was dire and desperate. This was not simply disappointment or disheartenment. This was like the despair of the people in Paradise, California, looking at the utter destruction of their entire town during the fires this last year. When everything matters to us has been destroyed, what do you have left? When there's nothing that can be done humanly, there's no possibility that you can imagine, where do you turn? Ezekiel says, God said to me, mortal, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord, you know. Can God breathe new life into that which has grown lifeless and is beyond hope? Only God knows the answer to that question. One night while I was on call at the hospital for the chaplain's office, a young man was rushed into the ER with the emergency medical technicians working feverishly to save his life. Knowing that life was approaching the limits of what was humanly possible, the staff in the ER paged me, the chaplain, and my beeper alerted me to drop what I was doing and get to the ER as fast as I could. They also phoned the next of kin. In this case, it was his fiancée. Despite the medical team's best efforts, the car accident, which had pinned him under the truck that he had been riding in, took his life. In the triage room in that emergency area was a scene of tremendous agony. I'll never forget the piercing, agonizing cries of his fiancée when she was informed by the doctors that her future husband had died. The physicians quickly withdrew, and I was alone with her in that room, trying to provide some level of comfort, praying for God's intervention, grasping at any ideas or words that might bring comfort and hope to a woman who had lost her future, at least the future she had hoped for. He was gone, and it was bone-chilling. No resuscitation possible, no self-improvement could redeem the situation, no time left, and despair just kind of drenched the room. Can these bones live? Asks the Lord. Can that which is lost, lost and lifeless once again come to life? Oh, Lord God, you know. You alone know. Now, belief recognizes that death is real and we're powerless in the face of so much of life. But there can be no ultimate pessimism about life and the future, no cynicism about the value of life in the present moment, despite that reality. 
Because faith claims that we're moving not only towards the end of life, we're moving towards its fulfillment. I don't know about you, but I'm not a huge fan of zombie movies. But they've become really popular in our culture, especially for young people. And it's quite literally, these movies are about the living dead. According to Brian Blunt, in a figurative sense, the reader or the viewer of these zombie movies is compelled to compare the walking dead reality to one's own natural reality and thereby realize that what we call normal life itself is in a crisis situation. We simply don't see it yet. To make the point more fine, we're not waiting for the walking dead. We already are the walking dead. End quote. We can't live apart from the life that God provides. True life with the one who made us is where life is to be found. And we exist somewhere here between life and death. Does that recognition not help explain why we consume each other so often and our world the way we do? Does it not help us understand why so often we're so vicious to one another? We are the dead. And it should not be surprising, therefore, that we act and behave in such deadly ways with one another. So the question in our text is, can you begin to imagine that God might fashion a future that we haven't yet imagined? Can you believe that God has the power to resurrect a nation that feels like it's hopelessly destined to unravel? Do you believe that God can bring back to life a church that has lost its way and squandered its inheritance? This is a powerful image of life from nothing, a reversal of decomposition, a hopeful image of God's power to save us and to save all creation. In other words, we will finally and we will truly be alive, alive with the breath of God, We will dwell in the presence of the Lord forever. You see, it's in the darkest of times that God's presence is often most known. Do you have a hope that sustains you when there's nothing left that's humanly possible? Do you believe in a God who raises the dead and gives life again to all that has grown lifeless within us. 
You know, back in the story of creation in Genesis, God fashions humanity from the ground, and then he breathes into the nostrils the breath of life. The language is that of intimacy and closeness, made in God's image, breathing by the borrowed breath of God. Human life depends upon God at every moment. We just become abundantly aware of that fact when we come to the limits of what's humanly possible. When all that secures our life is stripped away, what is left is God's breath in us. In the Hebrew, the word is ruach. Wind. Spirit. Breath. It's used ten times in this text. When it gets translated into the Greek, it comes in as pneuma, from which we get the word pneumonia, lungs, breath. It's the word used in the New Testament in Acts of the Apostles when the Spirit came upon them at Pentecost. And they spoke in different languages. What strikes me this morning is this vision of a better future ahead. Sometimes it's hard to believe that things will get better in the future. Especially when you're standing in a cemetery or in a hospital room. We look at the circumstances of our lives, we conclude we've already experienced the best it can or ever will be. And our answer too often to the question is, can these bones live? Will these bones dance? Too often our answer is, no, these bones won't live. There's no new life to be found here. And too often we settle for becoming the living dead. But can you believe by the power of God that life will get better where the breath of God exists? That even that which has grown lifeless will begin to rattle again. That's the power of resurrection. Two gifts. Not only are we not dead, we're given the gift of seeing the future, and it has a way of changing the way we live today, just as it did in the time of Ezekiel. All that is needed is to breathe by the borrowed breath of God. When our despair is down to the bone, we have to learn to breathe again. Breathe by that which comes from God alone. Ruach. Numa. See, the power of resurrection is good news only when it's coupled with the promise of regeneration. It's not only life in the future, it's life now that's affected. 
A new world is opened up. And with that new world is the capacity to live differently. How might you live differently? We become new people, living in a new age. The power of resurrection implies, as the Apostle Paul says, that we walk in newness of life. Just as Christ was raised from the dead, by the glory of the Father, so too might we walk in newness of life, breathing the breath of God. So let's give up being the living dead. And let's live by the breath of God. Thanks be to God. Amen.